The next case was presented by Dr. Carolyn Hendricks. This woman's a 49-year-old woman, recently diagnosed. She presented with a palpable mass in her right breast. Her lumpectomy pathology showed a 1.5 centimeter, grade 1, ER, PR positive, quantitated at 10%. HER2 score, 3 plus. FISH amplified, highly amplified, with a ratio of 11.6. And sentinel node negative, invasive ductal carcinoma, with some intermediate grade DCIS. And she was widely excised, so she was a candidate for breast radiotherapy. She actually underwent partial breast radiotherapy, and then she was referred to me for adjuvant chemotherapy. Just by way of her history, she was a very heavy smoker, but she did not have any other previous medical problems, and she was otherwise well. And she was started on adjuvant chemotherapy exactly as administered in Arm C of the intergroup trial, 9831. And after completing her AC chemotherapy, she had a MUGA scan for determination of rejection fraction prior to the administration of her septin. And that study was kind of done routinely. She didn't have cardiac history prior to this, but they were unable to complete the study. They were unable to gate her rhythm. She was found to have a mild sinus arrhythmia, which prompted a referral to a cardiologist. And her estimated ejection fraction by echocardiogram was 45%. She had a Holter monitor, and it showed normal sinus rhythm, so she had no significant arrhythmia. And her cardiac exam was otherwise unremarkable. And she's remained in normal sinus rhythm. And so the dilemma then is whether it's appropriate for her to receive her septin, concurrent taxing chemotherapy, and then to consider her septin as in 9831. And did she have a pretreatment ejection no, fraction? she did not. Julie? Have you repeated the mugger echo? No, this is just recently, actually just okay. this past week. But she was in somewhat of an arrhythmia at the time, so you might get a different answer if she stays in sinus well, rhythm. Well, no, when the echocardiogram was done, she was in sinus. Oh, okay. Yeah. She okay. Was. When the mugger scan was done, she had a minor sinus. The cardiologist really didn't know how to interpret that, and so when she reflected the echocardiogram, the echocardiogram was done when she was in sinus rhythm, and her echocardiographic ejection fraction was 45%. There has been a cardiology panel called to look at all of the data related to cardiac toxicity with respect to drops in ejection fraction at all. And interestingly, although this is not published anywhere, the current recommendation is going to be in the next phase adjuvant trials that it would be reasonable to go down to an ejection fraction of 40% because there was no prediction for what happened subsequently for patients in terms of symptoms, et cetera, for patients who just dropped asymptomatically into the 40%, 50% range. Now, what the cardiologists are talking about here, though, is a drop in EF down to that, not a baseline EF of down to 40%. So it doesn't quite meet what their recommendations are going to be. Since it's not published, I would want to get more data on it. She's node negative. If she were node positive, I would also be more inclined to really push it and carefully repeat her ejection fraction. She's a low grade and ERPR positive as well. So you have some other favorable features going along with this. I think you could go either way. If you and she decided to try it, I'd probably very closely follow the echo or mug or whatever it is that you're going to follow and maybe repeat it as early as six weeks into it as opposed to doing it every three months and see what happens. Julie, do you get a baseline pretreatment EF in all patients or just over a certain age? Before the AC? Mm-hmm. 
if I'm going to give trastuzumab, I actually do get it, even before the AC generally. But if I'm not, if it's HER2 non-overexpressing tumor, I don't. I tend to use maybe 60 as my cutoff above which I tend to get them and below which if they are asymptomatic with no history, I don't get them. Rich, any comments on the case? I had a couple of comments. The tumor phenotype of this is extremely unusual. It's ER positive, PR positive, grade one. About 4% of grade one tumors are HER2 positive. And so I just wonder about what's really going on here in terms of what we're talking about, about the accuracy of the molecular markers. And whenever I get this kind of incongruous or uncommon type of combinations, I retest everything. I have the histology reviewed, and I would retest the ERPR and HER2 to confirm this, because this is, again, a very uncommon type of breast cancer. If all of these were confirmed at a separate laboratory, for these types of patients, I consider the FinHER regimen. I think that it was a small trial, but other than that, it's a very clean trial. It says exactly what the 8,000 other patients' trials said about Herceptin. So I, especially in these lower burden, lower risk HER2 patients, I use that because it's much, much more compact, obviously. And number two is, in this particular patient, if we assume that the AC made her ejection fraction drop down, in the FinHer regimen, you do what logically we probably should be doing anyway. You give your Herceptin and Taxotere first before you take any hits on the heart, and you get it over with. But of course, in this case, she's already had the adriamycin, so that's not going to be an option. Julie, what are your thoughts about that? I have to say that most of the breast cancer clinical investigators that I've talked to have said it's too early to consider less than a year of trastuzumab off protocol. What are your thoughts? I think I would agree with that. I think the FinHer trial is very intriguing. Patients end up getting nine weeks because they drop their ejection fraction and we stop the trastuzumab sometimes. I probably would either make a go for it for a year or not, you know, and you might be surprised that it's rebounded. Evaluating ejection fraction is a little bit of an art too and not just a pure science. And so if I went for the trastuzumab, I'd go for the year. Just as a comment, again, it's not high level evidence, but Dr. Chang did a trial in our group of Herceptin alone in which we gave it for three weeks as monotherapy. After three weeks of monotherapy and very large cancers, we saw a substantial reduction and substantial increase in apoptosis rates. The cells were dead after that amount of time. Yeah, now we've talked to Jenny Chang, and she's actually discussed this on our series, that these are women with locally advanced breast cancers, and a lot of them were indigent into the public Mm -hmm. clinic that you guys have there, and that a lot of these patients had dramatic clinical responses. Did you take care of any of those people? Yes. Can you kind of talk about the time sequence of when that occurred? Well, when we started this study, we were concerned whether we were going to see responses or not, and it was pretty dramatic. We had these patients come back after one week, and the first few patients would come back after one week of Herceptin. We'd usually start them, and in this clinic, they were the tumors were very large, the skin was very tense, many times red. After one week, they'd come back, their breast was no longer tense the redness had started to go out of their breast, the pain that they were having had all gone down. This was after seven days of treatment. 
we were like, this is very unexpected. And after three weeks, we saw shrinkages of a substantial portion of the cancers. We were very surprised. Dr. Dufusco? Could you even make an argument that this lady doesn't need trastuzumab? She's 49. She's going to be a candidate for an aromatase inhibitor. We have some discordant data here. Could you make an argument that you would just treat her with the chemo tamoxifen and then... Yeah, that's what I had said earlier. You know, if she were node positive, it might push me harder. I really think that I'd be more likely to be hesitant in somebody like this, that she's got other good risk factors. I agree with Rich that this is a very unusual combination, but she's IHC3 plus and fish positive. And then the grade one and the ERP are kind of go together. I mean, it's interesting. She might really, this might really be. I think the grade is the kicker here. Are you influenced by that high copy number, the high ratio in patients, for example, when you try to make a decision about adjuvant Herceptin? I don't know that the copy number's been correlated with response to trastuzumab. Interestingly enough, it hasn't. We've looked at copy number in terms of expression, and what we find is that the discordances tend to revolve around copy numbers between two and three, and that's where you get discordances. And when you get high copy numbers, the concordances, either high or low, there's much more concordance. Final question, Rich? Yeah, just in keeping with what Dr. DeFosco said, I was wondering if you could comment on these small tumors, the T1Bs that you're seeing that are HER2 positive, because in all the trials, they were not included and they did not receive Herceptin, yet patients are coming in and saying, do I need Herceptin? And there's no data that I'm aware of. Yeah, but size is a continuum, and there are a variety of other things to take a look at in those patients. There may be some with high-grade HER2-positive tumors in general just don't tend to have low recurrence scores in the Oncotype DX21 gene recurrence score assay, and they tend to all fall in at least the two, if not the three range. So in that intermediate zone that wasn't really tested, I think you have to look at the whole picture. Tumor size and nodal status have in no systemic therapy predicted the relative risk reduction. It's the same no matter what your nodal status is or tumor size. Your absolute benefit does vary, but the relative risk is the same. Now, it hasn't been examined with trastuzumab, but there's no biologic reason to think that the relative risk reduction of 50% of trastuzumab would be different in smaller tumors. It's just that the absolute Your benefit is going to be would be less, significantly though. less. Yes. So if a patient that you wouldn't normally have given chemotherapy to, would you give them trastuzumab? If I was going to give chemotherapy, I would always add trastuzumab. The reverse question, which is the one you've asked, we really need to look at a trial of an endocrine agent, for example, right. with trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting without any chemo. I'll have to say, in a patient like this, it's 1.5 centimeters and was node negative. The effect of chemotherapy, since she was ER positive and PR positive, the effect of chemotherapy does depend, as we talked about, on ER status, but the effect of Herceptin does not on ER. I don't know if you want to briefly comment on Dan Hayes' presentation, Julie, in terms of looking at the issue of HER2 in response to chemotherapy. 
Right. 9344, which was CLGB trial of AC plus minus paclitaxel, the first adjuvant paclitaxel trial. We've tried to sort out what subgroups benefit, and Dan Hayes showed at ASCO this year retrospective HER2 staining, suggesting that the bulk of the benefit to the addition of the paclitaxel in that study was restricted to the HER2-positive population. We'd previously seen an analysis where the bulk of the benefit was restricted to the ER-negative population. I don't think it's just HER2 or just ER or just one marker, but I do think that we're getting a little bit smarter about this. And I wouldn't actually withhold a taxane in a HER2-negative, ER-positive patient based on this retrospective data, but I think we have to evaluate it prospectively. I really do. We're giving too much chemo in general, and we've got to figure out who we feel comfortable doesn't need it.